This is the Daily Signal podcast for Friday, January 29th. I'm Kate Trinko. And I'm Virginia Allen. The Chicago Teachers Union voted Sunday to not reopen schools despite the CDC saying it's now safe to do so. Jonathan Butcher, a Heritage Foundation senior policy analyst in the Center for Education Policy, joins the show to explain the role unions are playing in keeping schools closed in Chicago and across the country and what should be done to ensure all students have the opportunity to receive a good education. And don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, and please encourage others to subscribe. Now, onto our top news. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced that when it comes to the massive COVID relief bill, Senate Democrats could move ahead without Republican votes. Here's what he had to say via the Hill. So the Senate, as early as next week, will begin the process of considering a very strong COVID relief bill. Our preference is to make this important work bipartisan, to include input, ideas, and revisions from our Republican colleagues or bipartisan efforts to do the same. But if our Republican colleagues decide to oppose this urgent and necessary legislation, We will have to move forward without them. We have a responsibility to help the American people fast, particularly given these new economic numbers. The Senate will begin that work next week. Schumer is alluding to a process called budget reconciliation, which can allow a fiscal bill that meets certain conditions to pass with just 51 votes in the Senate. The current COVID-19 package being discussed is a whopping $1.9 trillion. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says there is a threat to the safety of members of Congress coming from within the House. During a press conference Thursday, Pelosi said Congress needs to pass a supplemental spending bill to provide additional security for members who are concerned about their safety, per CBS News. I do believe, and I have said this all along, that we will probably need a supplemental uh, for uh, more security for members when the enemy is within the House of Representatives, uh, a, a threat that members are concerned about in addition to what is happening outside. When questioned by the Washington Examiner about her comment regarding an enemy in the House, Pelosi had this to say per CBS News. It means that we have members of Congress who want to bring guns on the floor and have threatened uh, violence on other members of Congress. Some Republican Congress members do carry licensed firearms but are not allowed to do so on the House floor. Metal detectors have been installed outside the House chamber following the attack on the Capitol January 6th, but Pelosi says more needs to be done to protect members who feel unsafe. In an executive order Thursday, President Biden scrapped the Mexico City policy, which prevents U.S. funding from going to international organizations that provide abortions or refer women for abortions elsewhere. However, a new Marist poll, sponsored by the Catholic organization Knights of Columbus, found that 77% of Americans oppose tax dollars going to fund abortions overseas. And that opposition crosses party lines. 55% of Democrats, as well as 95% of Republicans, hold this position. 
Biden also opened up Obamacare for a new enrollment period, February 15th to May 15th. The White House stated that the extra time to sign up was designed to ensure that those who wanted access to health care coverage during the pandemic had it. New York nursing homes may have undercounted the COVID-19 deaths of their residents by as much as 50 percent, according to a report by the New York Attorney General's office. New York's health department has reported 8,677 COVID-19-related nursing home deaths, but the actual number is likely closer to 13,000. The Attorney General's report uncovered the inaccuracy within the reported numbers because the state's Department of Health has only been counting nursing home deaths as those which take place within the nursing home and not the deaths of those elderly individuals who are transported to the hospital and then pass away at the hospital. Attorney General Latita James said in a statement that while we cannot bring back the individuals we lost to this crisis, this report seeks to offer transparency that the public deserves and to spur increased action to protect our most vulnerable residents. Robinhood, a company that allows people to trade stocks, is now restricting trading of certain stocks after a surge in GameStop and other stocks after people on the online forum Reddit realized such stocks were heavily shorted, meaning others were betting that the stocks would continue to decline in price and stood to have enormous losses if the opposite happened and the stocks went up. Now, both Senator Ted Cruz, Republican of Texas, and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Democrat of New York, are speaking out. Ocasio-Cortez tweeted, This is unacceptable. We now need to know more about Robin Hood's decision to block retail investors from purchasing stock while hedge funds are freely able to trade the stock as they see fit. As a member of the Financial Services Committee, I'd support a hearing if necessary. Cruz responded to her tweet, fully agree. However, the bipartisan unity was short-lived, with Ocasio-Cortez tweeting at Cruz, I am happy to work with Republicans on this issue where there's common ground, but you almost had me murdered three weeks ago, so you can sit this one out. Happy to work with almost any other GOP that aren't trying to get me killed. In the meantime, if you want to help, you can resign. According to Chris Coffey of Roll Call, Cruz told reporters about the Ocasio-Cortez tweet, there's a lot of partisan anger and rage on the Democratic side. It's not healthy for our country. It's certainly not conducive of healing or unity, but everyone has to decide how they want to interact with others. Now stay tuned for my conversation with Heritage Foundation's Jonathan Butcher as we discuss the role unions are playing in keeping schools closed in Chicago and across the country, even as the CDC says it's safe to resume in-person learning. We're all guilty of it, spending too much time watching silly videos on the internet. But it's 2021. Maybe it's time for a change. At the Heritage Foundation YouTube channel, you'll find videos that both entertain and educate, including virtual events featuring the biggest names in American politics, original explainers and documentaries, and heritage experts diving deep on topics like election integrity, China, and other threats to our democracy. 
All brought to you by the nation's most broadly supported public policy research institute. Start watching now at heritage.org slash YouTube. And don't forget to subscribe and share. I am joined by Jonathan Butcher, a Heritage Foundation Senior Policy Analyst in the Center for Education Policy. Jonathan, thanks so much for being here. Great to be with you. So, Jonathan, the CDC has told us that it's now safe for schools to reopen, providing that certain precautions are taken. But the Chicago public schools, they were scheduled to reopen for in-person learning on Monday, but just the day prior, on Sunday, the Chicago Teachers Union said no. They voted no. We're not going to reopen yet. We're going to continue to do distance learning. What was your response when you heard about how the Chicago Teachers Union really made this decision on behalf of all students in this very large county? Well, not surprised. This is not the first time that the union has opposed reopening schools to in-person learning, nor is it the first time that unions over the past year have used the pandemic as a place to elevate their other political aims. They have not been shy about talking about their uh, goals outside of education-related policies and ideas. So this keeps uh, the union in the headlines. So what are those goals? I mean, what what is the argument here, first off, that the Chicago Union is making for why they're keeping the schools closed? And then kind of looking at the whole situation, what are those broader gains that I guess they're seeking from this? Well, over and over again, unions have called for additional spending for the different kinds of, you know, either plexiglass or plastic or masks or uh, cleaning solutions, things, things like that to use in schools. Um, they have, uh, you know, said that in, in order for teachers to feel safe, we have to have, you know, these what are mostly reasonable things to, to keep schools uh, safe and, and clean and open. The issue is we already have them, right? I mean, Washington added some $13 billion to schools last April in new spending. They did it again with almost $60 billion in new spending last December. Here's the thing, though. As of the end of September last fall, research from uh, a former heritage uh, researcher and friend of mine, Dan Lips, found that some 85% of money from the first spending bill still had not been uh, spent by schools. Wow. So you're, I want to ask you um, about something one of your colleagues wrote, Lindsay Burke. She wrote in a recent Daily Signal piece that the Chicago Public School District has argued the union's refusal to have teachers report for in-person work is tantamount to a strike, which violates the collective bargaining agreement they have with Chicago Public Schools. Do you agree with this? Uh, sure. Yes. I mean, this has been uh, something that the the unions have used to n- try to not call it a strike, right? When in fact, uh, it effectively is by keeping the schools closed. I would add too that you know it's not as though the district was saying they're going to send all kids back at the same time for in person learning all at once. They were really only letting children with special needs and some of the very youngest grades go back first before they started to move back in elementary and middle school students. And as of at least a couple of weeks ago, there was, uh, I don't believe that there was a specific calendar for high school students. So, um, you know, once again, the suggestion here that the district was somehow being 
you know, not respecting the the safety of teachers or or moving too quickly, right? Here we are a year into uh, into the pandemic is is just false. So what options does Chicago have right now? I mean, they're looking at thousands of students that have been out of school for about 11 months now. Are, do they have any sort of recourse to move forward and to say, no, actually, uh, we are going to send our kids back to school no matter what the unions say? Well, curiously, the union has uh, used this to their advantage with the legislature by working to try to get additional bargaining abilities Uh, The Illinois Policy Institute was reporting recently that the union is trying to get new authority to bargain over issues related to the workplace that they didn't have before. So the union has is already jockeying to use this uh, to their advantage. It's hard to say, really, I think, where the district, uh, you know, could go. I, I think that what's important to talk about now, right, today, Um, being part of National School Choice Week uh, is that this is another reminder for parents that, uh, and policymakers, that parents and children need additional options, especially in cases like these, when the union is officially, you know, keeping kids away from in-person learning. Yeah, that is so, so critical. And I do want to touch on school choice here in a moment. But um, first, Jonathan, I want to ask, besides Chicago, are we seeing this scenario play out in other counties across the country where unions are really standing in the way of students returning to the classroom? Unions across the country and in the national offices of the AFT and the NEA have um, been vocal about their opposition to in-person learning. In fact, the AFT released a statement last summer where they said that they would not object to local chapters that decided to go on strike uh, due to school reopening decisions or district reopening decisions. I think, you know, it's fair to be sensitive to what parents are looking for right now. Uh, a recent survey found that there there is a bit of a racial divide between the parents who are ready for students to go back and who aren't. So, for example, 76% of white parents in this survey said that they are ready to send children back for in-person learning, while 56% of black parents said they were ready to go back. So the issue is that for those who are ready, of which overall 69% of those who had the option to go back in person did so, right? So for those who are ready, that option should be made available to them. I think that's central to, to what we're talking about here. Yeah, no, that is key, having that option. And that's interesting to hear those findings. Is there a precedent before COVID in years past for unions really getting involved in this way uh, to say, you know, teachers think it's unsafe to teach for one reason or another, and so we're putting a pause on in-person education? Not related to safety, but unions have used strikes, especially in recent years. I mean, it was 2017, 2018, where the strikes in Arizona, West Virginia, Oklahoma took place that closed schools for weeks, in some cases, arguing there over issues related to teacher pay and funding for public schools. So, you know, this is this is what unions do, right? They're ready-made political uh, action groups, um, and and that's you know they're exercising that that's those same abilities right now. So then, how does this relationship between teacher unions and public school districts need to change moving forward? I mean, how can this be improved? Well, I think for starters, that policymakers really should have no patience 
with unions who are abusing this point in time and, and their access to a platform to elevate their you know political aims. Um, there, you, you had a question a moment ago about where, where else this is happening in the U.S. There was actually a report out of Florida just a couple of weeks ago where the Broward County School Board found that there had been teachers who had gone to Jamaica for a wedding, another had gone to a political rally, Others were in restaurants, and these were all teachers who had requested that they still have leave to teach at home and not come into school in person. So they were found to have actually gone to gatherings with large groups of people, right, even while they requested that they not have to go into school. So there should be, there should be no patience for that, right? This is, this is inappropriate. Uh, for, for those who do have medical needs, that's something different. And that's something that um, we should be, you know, allowing people to, uh, to, to protect themselves and, and be there for safety. But, you know, when unions essentially cloud whether or not this is legitimate or not, it, it makes it uh, very difficult to determine how seriously we should take those concerns. Well, it, it does. It does exactly that. And I think it really uh, kind of feels, makes it feel like, okay, who are the unions uh, really standing up for in this case? It's clearly not the students. It's clearly not the parents. And in many cases, it definitely doesn't seem like it's even really the teachers that want to go back, that want to be able to you know, do, uh, do their best work, which they can only do in person. Well, I think you're exactly right. I mean, I think that um, while we have um, evidence from surveys that parents are not satisfied with uh, the at-home learning experience, that survey that I was talking about just a little bit ago, parents reported uh, 38% of respondents were uh, not satisfied with their remote learning experience at this point in the pandemic right now. Those numbers were even higher for those who had a hybrid learning situation. So, you know, the needs of, of parents are not being represented and thereby the needs of students as well. And uh, like we were talking about with, you know, these political aims, I don't think uh, even the needs of teachers necessarily are the priority right now. What are we learning about the impact online learning is having on students' ability to actually learn and keep up with course material? Well, I think the ad hoc scenario that districts have set up has clearly not been effective. Uh, around the country, from Virginia to California and places in between, the share of students earning Ds and Fs has uh, gone up. In some, in some cases, that share is double what it was at the same time uh, last year. Uh, so we have grades going down. Um, there was a, a survey from Pew Research uh, conducted a couple of months ago that found that uh, over 70% of parents from low-income households felt that their children were falling behind by this prolonged uh, case of, of uh, district online uh, delivery. Now, look, we know that virtual learning will work for some families. It will work for those families that chose it, right? I mean, this should be an option for the families that want it. But forcing everyone into it, just as the same with forcing everyone into an assigned school system, is not going to work uh, for every child. Well, it's got to be so painful for those parents who, you know, they're for their kids, they want to see their child succeed, and yet they're seeing them struggle. You know, they maybe have a full-time job that they have to work. They can't be there 24-7 helping their child walk through assignments, explaining things to them as a teacher could. I want to play a clip from um, a recent video of a father who uh, just got so, so frustrated during a county school board meeting. He's from Loudoun County, Virginia. 
Uh, and he just was really honest and spoke his mind about the situation, about how he feels about it. So let's, uh, let's take a listen to this clip that was posted by Time Is Everything. You're a bunch of cowards hiding behind our children as an excuse for keeping schools closed. You think you're some sort of martyrs because of the decisions you're making when the statistics do not lie that the vast majority of the population is not at risk from this virus. The garbage workers who pick up my freaking trash risk their lives every day more than anyone in this school system. Figure it out or get off the podium because you know what? There are people like me and a line of other people out there who will gladly take your seat and figure it out. It's not a high bar. Raise the freaking bar. Jonathan, I want to get your reaction to that clip. What does it tell us about what's really happening at home for parents and students, what they are really facing right now? Well, I think it's indicative of the headlines that we do see in the news. I mean, I think parents are being stretched thin right now, especially parents that are trying to work and they have kids at home uh, trying to do school all day, which, by the way, is anywhere from one third to about half of families with school-aged children right now. So it's still the case today that as many, perhaps as many as half of the households with school-aged kids are just doing Uh, remote learning full-time right now. And there are districts that are talking about doing this again in the fall. Even the hybrid scenarios, like we were talking about before, have not generated um, satisfactory results for many families. So I, I think the frustration level with those parents who have been doing this now going back to last March is uh, is pretty high. What do you think is we're going to find when these kids actually do go back to the classroom And, you know, who knows for some of them, if they've really been consistently learning or, you know, as we've seen, like you mentioned, so many are falling behind with grades. Are teachers going to have to essentially repeat a whole year's worth of material because very little learning actually took place in a lot of counties across the country this year? Well, I think when it comes to issues of student achievement, this uh, certainly isn't helping things. And the national indicators that we have had, especially in the past five to seven years, have shown largely stagnant um, um, achievement across the nation's report card in math and reading anyway, right? So we were already at a place where the achievement of students on the best indicators that we have were just not not satisfactory, right? We, we, we shouldn't be pleased with what's going on. So uh, I think this is, is certainly going to make that uh, make that worse. It'll be, you know, it's going to be some time before we know exactly what those numbers look like because there's still discussions about postponing or canceling the standardized testing for this spring. Uh, which is going to make it very hard for the teachers that need to know where a child is in September or in August of this year, right? At the beginning of the next school year, where do they start and where do they begin? If we don't have some way to figure out what students know or don't know, uh, it'll make it tougher for uh, teachers to meet student needs come fall. So as you mentioned earlier, we are right in the middle of National School Choice Week. How does the situation that we're facing right now with these unions, with school boards, keeping schools locked down, really highlight the importance of school choice? 
Well, I think unions have once again overplayed their hand when it comes to how they think that the public is going to react to their activities. Um, I would say too that you know this pandemic being unprecedented, certainly in this generation with the effects that it's had on people's lives, I think it is uh, already through surveys last year demonstrating that parents are thinking more about homeschooling, uh, learning pods, which uh, parents are forming independently sometimes of schools, um, as well as as private learning options. So, you know, we have a unique moment in time for state lawmakers, which is really where the work needs to be done, for state policymakers to be looking at the needs of the families in their, uh, in their states and in the, the cities and towns and local communities in their states who need a quality learning option for their children today, right? They need it right now. Um, and so, you know, now that makes school choice uh, more urgent than ever. I mean, this is something um, that today is not just, um, you know, it's never just been a policy idea, uh, but today it's more than even that, right? It's uh, today it's essential. Yeah. Well, we want to thank you for all the work that you do on that issue of school choice. Jonathan, where can our listeners uh, find and follow your work? Uh, you can find more of what we've done on this issue of the pandemic and opening schools and others at heritage.org. Great. Jonathan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. You can find the Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with you all on Monday. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Rachel Del Judas. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.